All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the FlowTrack Podcast. FlowTrackPodcast at gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on YouTube and on our website and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kevin. He's Gordon. Gordon didn't take the day off yesterday. You worked all through the weekend analyzing, reacting to, getting expert feedback about this cross-country field. How are you, Gordon? Doing good. Uh, yeah, long long weekend for me. I mean, we we finally have all the data that we need to know what's going to happen uh, this upcoming weekend. You know, every week or week, two weeks, you're trying to project who's going to win the NCAA cross-country. You don't know what individuals are running, what teams, but now we know the field. We know the 255 athletes for the most part, and now we can start re-predicting and re-projecting who we think is going to win and, you know, get excited for the Monday championships just a week from now. When you think back to a couple months ago when this idea was first hatched about having indoors and cross-country over the same four-day period, has it worked out? how you thought it would now that we have the fields set we obviously don't know the results of either meet but just having the field set and knowing who's running what did it work out the way you thought it would i mean yes and no i mean there's definitely some uh flaws in the system uh there's flaws in that you know the indoor distance races are definitely not going to be what they would have been if it was a true, if there was no cross country championships and the cross country championships has a little bit of not asterisks, but you know, there's going to be no Oregon, right? There's going to be no Michigan. They probably would have made it if it was a normal season, but you know, two teams out of 31, not being there is not the end of the world. And when you think about it on the, on the men's and women's side, the teams that we thought are in contention to win, it are in it and on in an indoor yeah we're not gonna have a year Nagus or Luis Gorhalva or Connor Mance or you know oh oh uh, who else I'm trying to think on the women's side but Whitney Orn does uh Ella Donahue not at the mm-hmm. indoor but we're still gonna get the, the the fast sprints the fast the good fields the good throws so it's not a hundred percent normal but it's as close as we're ever gonna get and after taking a year off from watching track and field, I think it's worth enjoying and accepting for what it is. Yeah. And I think those were hiccups that you anticipated too. Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but you anticipated the fact that there would be some teams who didn't make it just because the quirky schedule and you anticipated watered down distance fields for the indoor championships. I'm just interested we always thought indoor or cross country, what are people going to pick on the distance side? Pretty much everybody picked cross country. It was not a close fight in the end. You have Oregon, except how many Oregon. Oregon. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I meant, yeah, I meant in the, um, I guess I meant more towards the longer distances, but even then uh, Oregon is running guys in the 3K. But like Wesley Kiptu, Cooper Tier. Now, Cooper is not going to be in cross, but like Wesley Kiptu, is he the only person in the men's or women's field who's doing both with a, you know, with top five potential? I mean, you could say that Amoyne Kemboy of Arkansas has top okay. five potential. He's a top five returner from last year's cross country season, but 
we have to assume Kemboy is doing a 3K, 5K double, and the, the Arkansas team in general is going all in on indoor. So they're not going to really be a true uh, – what that nor- they're not going to be a true cross country contender because of how yeah. much they're going to be running. Uh, but yeah, Kip Two, I guess, is the only one who we look to as like. I mean, Mercy, wait, is Mercy Chilangat doing both? I guess Mercy Chilangat's <laughs> doing both. Uh, yeah, okay. the women's field though, doesn't one. really have a true number one, and it kind of worked out where Whitney Orton doesn't have indoor and. Uh, and what's her name? Who's the other B? Who's the other BYU athlete? Who's the hers? Who's the best three K runner? And no, no, no. Who's one oh, only running indoors? And no, no, the other one. Hoy. No. Oh, Wayman, Courtney Wayman. Wayman, yeah, and Courtney Wayman yep. doesn't have cross, so it kind of worked out where the like, the yeah, two best yeah, yeah. BYU athletes only have one or the other season. Yeah, yeah. There's there's not much crossover. And I think it's going to be fine. I mean, I don't think there's going to be really an asterisk on, like, you're not the real champion because Cooper Tier wasn't in the cross-country race or because Connor Mance wasn't in the 5K. I mean, yeah. Cooper Tier has run. Cooper Tier and Courtney Wayman have – if they win an NCAA indoor title, it's going to be earned. Mm-hmm. And if Luis Grijalva or Ella Donahue or – Whitney Orton win a cross country title, it's going to be earned. So, yeah. I don't think there's going to be any like fake champion, like we've had in certain events during my my time here, which I won't get into. But there are some fake NCAA champions out there in the past five to six years that I've seen, based okay, on we'll circumstances. Get to that tomorrow, we'll get in a <laughs> tomorrow's show. We'll get to that one. You yeah. brought up, and we're going to run your interview with Blake Bolton, who was on the selection committee later on in the pod. People can find it, too, as a as a one-off interview as well, too. You mentioned Oregon and Michigan on the men's side being the two surprises. Explain that more for, for the audience, maybe who was not paying attention to every single beat of the cross-country season. Well, Oregon specifically, if you read the tea leaves based on the way Bolden responded to my question, Oregon did not declare. I think they would have gotten in with the fourth place finish at Pac-12s, but the Oregon men didn't declare, similar to the Texas men and Texas women didn't declare. So uh, Oregon wasn't snubbed. Uh, they just chose not to go to NCAA cross-country. Wait, you know that 100% they didn't declare? Or is that you speculating? Are you reporting? It's, my, it's, me, it's me speculating the responses, uh, but okay. I am pretty confident that's what happened. I'm willing to go to bat on this opinion. Uh, but yeah, Oregon didn't declare. So, uh, I mean, they can, you you could, someone can ask Robert Johnson of Oregon, hey, did you declare? He might, he might try to dodge the question. But I, I, if, are they at the indoor championship press conference? We'll ask them then. But I, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 99.9% sure they didn't declare. So. Well, and, we saw the results last week at the end of the week from Pac-12s. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but they only ran five guys, and they ran Jackson Meshler, who's going to go to the meet as an individual, and that's well-deserved. But that was a signal they're not really trying to make the meet. Yeah. If you're only running five guys at your conference championship, which serves as the de facto qualifier when you've only had two meets this year, that's just a signal that this wasn't a priority, which is fine. Makes total sense. I totally empathize in a crazy year – any program making that sort of decision, trying to 
put all their eggs in one basket, not trying to spread their athletes too thin, 100% understand it. And then this is the result that, that comes from it. Even if they wanted to be in the meet, it, it wasn't like they were putting their best foot forward to qualify. Yeah. And then on the Michigan side, which we asked, which you guys can listen to one of the NSA committee members, Blake Bolden's reasoning for no Michigan. I really think they just had a tough decision and they're trying to please two situations with, you know, there are, how do you say no to a conference champion who's undefeated versus a team mm -hmm. that their only race they have is a loss to like the 30th best team. So you're like, okay. <laughs> right. Cause the, the thing is like, mm -hmm. I mean, people say the argument is people say Syracuse cause Syracuse beat Michigan. For those who don't know, Michigan didn't run a big tens. They, they only had one race and they raced Syracuse and they lost to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. um, Syracuse was only sixth at ACC. So Syracuse was a bubble team in the first place. But the argument is, Syracuse probably got in for their good win over Michigan. Right. And that right. implies that Michigan is good. So therefore, shouldn't Michigan be considered good to get in? Right. And, you know, this teams seemed that like they the play in game. Yeah. This was the play in race, basically. You know how the basketball tournament expanded from 64 to 68 and they had the two extra yeah, games? Yeah. Michigan, Michigan versus Syracuse ended up being a de facto play-in game. I understand why people would argue with that and would say, hey, both of them deserve to get in. But just looking at the results, 31-42. You're right, because what else does Syracuse have on their, their resume? It's not like they had a signature performance this year. And if Michigan beats them, obviously that would bump Syracuse down and Michigan would have been in the meet. Like, yeah. What other conclusion so can you draw? Yeah, I think if Michigan won that race, Michigan would be in and Syracuse would not. And if Syracuse won the race, Syracuse is in and Michigan is not. I mean, people are saying, well, boats should be in. But if boats should be in, you have to take a team out. And the team that you would take out probably would have been like a Charlotte or a Villanova. And they probably mm -hmm. were thinking, hey, Charlotte won their conference. We do have to give some credence to being a conference champion. Villanova is second in their conference. So I do think uh, Michigan – Took a risk by racing Syracuse because you look on the women's side, they raced nobody and they just had a perfect mm -hmm. score. If Michigan would have raced nobody, they probably would have been in the meet and Syracuse wouldn't. So I think all the Syracuse fans out there should uh, send a thank you to uh, Ann Arbor and um, all the Ann Arbor fans out there should, uh, I don't know what they should do for Syracuse. Just be upset. <laughs> Syracuse. Yeah. Well, weren't they – at a point though, after they could not run their meet because of the, the COVID protocols, they had to basically take whatever they could get. And I think it was a risk worth taking because you need, you probably thought, Hey, we need to run against somebody good enough that'll raise our stature in order to get it. Now, retrospect, hindsight being 2020, you look at the women's team. What was it? What was the roster of, of teams that the women beat? We got Dalton South State. Florida, Dalton State. And West Florida, right? You know, if they ran against that level of competition, would they? Would the Michigan men have gotten in? You know, when Probably. you ask the question to, to Blake, yeah. Well, the interesting, the way you phrased it was interesting because you basically were saying, "Aren't all the incentives here screwed up? Because aren't the incentives basically then to race weaker competition 
to get a win. But Michigan's situation was so unique because they weren't able to compete in the one thing that the committee outlined for sure of this thing has extra weight, which is the conference championship. So it was a anomaly inside of a strange, already strange season. So there was no real way to anticipate what the outcome um, would have been. And I'm guessing Michigan men probably went into that meet thinking, hey, we need to have a good showing. Now, maybe they thought, all right, we didn't win, but we got, you know, it's not like we got blown out by Syracuse, lost by 11 points. Syracuse's first runner was second. Michigan's was third. Syracuse's second runner was fifth. Michigan's was sixth, then seven, 10, eight, 11, nine, 12. They weren't that far behind him comparatively. Maybe they thought, hey, if we just stick it, stick close to a team that's going to get in, we'll be fine. Maybe that was the, maybe that was the calculation. But like I said, on Friday's show, there's just no, there's no good answer for this, this, and hopefully we never have to deal with this situation again. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Michigan is basically a casualty of the circumstance and this isn't going to be a, they're like, Oh, like we de-incentivize the need to erase people, but like, it's, it's just because of the weird time, mm-hmm. you know, one year from now or a little less than a year from now, hopefully it's not going to matter and we'll, everything will be mm-hmm. back to normal and there won't be this type of situation where a deserving team gets knocked out because of, you know, not running at, you know, not running at their regional <laughs> or something, whatever. Right. Well, the other part that was interesting, I don't want to step too much on your interview with Blake, but it sounded like they almost treated the conference meet the same way they do regionals. Was that your impression where they like looked at yeah. who, how people were ordered and then they went and they looked at wins going down the line. That was an interesting way to, I guess that's how you have to do it. You, you kind of set the conference in the same place that you had regionals. And, you know, I'm not even, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised that the committee came back with the results they did in a good way. Uh, I mean, my projection I had, on the men's side, I projected 29 of the 31 teams that were selected, but I also projected mm-hmm. that Oregon would be selected, and they didn't declare. So really, if I knew that Oregon wasn't declaring, I probably would have gone to the next team, right? And so mm-hmm. I feel like they got 29 of the 28 of the 30 teams, or no, excuse me, 29 of the 30 teams that I thought they would pick. So it's not like they only pick like. Mm-hmm. It's not like they were at like, all right, Alabama State conference champ, you're yeah. in, and you know, cheek, you know, whatever, make up some school names. The SWAC champion is now in, the SELAC mm-hmm. champions in. So at least they they yeah. there's people on the committee who knew cross country and knew we got the top twenty teams we on in. So that's the yeah. most important part, right? The top twenty teams are there. Yeah. And on the women's side, were there any surprises? Uh, not really. I mean, I had uh, Kentucky getting in because they beat Alabama, but Kentucky also lost, I think, head-to-head to Liberty, so it kind of makes sense that they didn't get in. And then I had another team in. I was surprised Colorado State got in, uh, but it was really – there wasn't like a situation like the Michigan men. Um, mm-hmm. And I had Texas getting in, but, te- again, Texas didn't declare, so that made sense. Uh, okay. Yeah, again, yeah. In the end, I think the committee came to a 
best they could field sans the Michigan situation. But the -hmm. committee was kind of set up to fail either way because of the Michigan situation. Um, If that situation didn't happen, I think we would have been like, oh, this was easy. I feel like you can listen to the interview. We'll listen to the end of the pod. But he said they they deliberated for eight hours. I bet you if the Michigan situation didn't happen, they would have deliberated for like 90 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. No, you would they, but that's why you have to have a committee. That's why you have yeah. to have a selection committee for purposes like this in a year like this, because someone would have had to make that decision, and it, it there was no common sense decision. Yeah, if they ran Big Tens, finished second, third, something like that, they'd have been in the meet. Someone would have, you know, that bottom team would have been bumped out, and then everybody would have gone on their merry way. All right, yeah, we're gonna play the interview at the end, but first we gotta recap some results from over the weekend. And that means, first of all, checking in on Gordon's guesses to see how successful my co-host was. Remember, I gave him two victories to start the year um, with, the, with his Texas qualified predictions and also with your – which other one did you predict? You predicted another meet pretty dang good too. Um, uh, the Paul so this, Chalimo time. That's right. Paul. Yep, exactly, exactly. So let's look at this. Uh, women's 1500, you had Sinclair Johnson 408. It was actually Sinclair Johnson – in 405.9, I'm gonna give you a win on that one. That's still pretty good. Men's 1500, you had Josh Kerr 334 to 335. Kerr was 335.78. That's a big win. 800, you had Aikens 201. It was Aikens 203. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that one. Men's eight, yeah. you did not pick a winner due to your friendship with Peter Callahan. <laughs> you abstained from picking on that one. Who had uh, a good race? But he you was had... in dead last and finished fourth. So yeah. Okay. So you had but... 400. But you got the time right. Well, you said 146, 147, and it was 147.7 with Josh Hoey, who's now won two 800s in a row. 5,000s is where you lost it a bit, mm. especially the women. You had 1508. Sisson ran a 1455, and you had three women sub 15. Men's five. Now, you had Mark Scott and Grant Fisher. So you had the order flip that was Fisher Scott. You said 1306 to 1308 on the clip that I cut, but then at the end of that, later on, you revised down. Fisher ended up running a 1302. So it's pretty, pretty good. All in all, you got way more than half. So I'll give you another victory. Congrats. Yes. Hey, man. Gotta keep rolling. Go. Um, yeah, there going were, to the there, moon. I mean, women's going five the was the only yeah. egregious miss. But again, the men's five, anytime you're picking, if there's a Bowerman Track Club race, and you're picking north of 13 minutes. I think that takes some stones on your part. So I'll give you credit for that one, even though you got the order flipped. And, and if it makes you, there was a time when I was watching the the women's 1500. Even though I know my prediction mm-hmm. was 408, literally 100 meters into race, I said it's gonna be 406. And then it was so like 100 meters in, I predicted the time at least. Yeah, yeah. which I think is fair enough. That's yeah. pretty good. Though. I was like, ah, oh, that's I was pretty like, good. Dang though. it. They're going for it. Cranny's there. Okay, it's going to be 406. This was like, so. Yeah, but 405.91 to 408, not that bad. Not that bad. Okay, let's talk though about these. Let's talk about these 5,000s because I think those were the story. The, the 5,000s and, and Josh Kerr's run. On the women's side of things, Emily Sisson, man, is really good at a lot of events. And it was like, she was like a runaway truck once it got like going downhill. Because Kaladi and Ailish McColgan go out hard. And it looks like it's just going to be two packs the whole way. And then all of a sudden, Sisson pops into the screen. 
and you're like, oh man, this is going to be a three person race. And then now she just rolled right past them. And then she rolled right past everybody and ends up smashing her PB and, and getting the Olympic standard. So I was very impressed with, with Sisson and the way she ran that race. And that's probably a blueprint for how she'd run it at the trials. That's her best path. She probably does not want it to come down to, you know, she doesn't want it to dawdle at all. Uh, so she's going to need that, that grinded out style, but 1455. I'm sure it surprised you because you predicted 1508, but what do you think of the, the women's five? I mean, I was, you know, like I was impressed that, you know, multiple women broke 15, you know, Ali Buchowski had a huge PB. She went from like 1520 down to sub 15. Yeah. And, you know, once you're in the sub 15 range, you're, you're getting into a, a realm that like, there was a time when we would go generations without many multi, without lots of American women getting into the mm -hmm. sub 15 uh, era. My only thing is when you juxtaposition it, I love using that word juxtaposition. Juxtapose. I feel like I'm juxtapose. I, I don't even know how to use the right word. That's why I like, I like having fun with it. I like thinking I'm smart. Um, when you juxtapose no, it to good. what, you know, Shelby and Carissa can run a, a 5k in. Yeah. It gives you a little perspective that, you know, they're not just a few seconds away from the elite of elite. They're still a full, like, 100 meters away from the elite of the elite. And with that being said, it makes me think, like, if I – when I think about the 5K team, I still feel like there's still a a drop-off from, from Sisson to the top three. Like, I don't think Sisson is really flirting with the top three yet because, I mean, El Perrier – has shown that she's mm -hmm. there. Obviously, um, Carisha Schweizer. And then, you, I mean, I would argue like a Shannon Roberry who's running the 1440s and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I, I'm just not sold yet. It didn't. Well, I think what, what this proved was we debated last time is Sisson going to run the five at the beginning of the meet after they switched the schedule? I think she's going to run the five. I think that settled it. Huddle was the other one we talked about. She DNF, so that's a TBD, whether or not she runs the five or she – now, she already has a standard, so she doesn't need to worry about getting it. But, I mean, just so many women now under 15 minutes that you think could have a shot. I'm with you. Purrier can run sub-15 and kick. Schweizer can run sub-15 pace and kick off of that. And you're going to need to do probably both of those things. If you want to make the team, but I was just impressed. I mean, this is a marathoner, and she's able to to do this. So this is this is yeah. impressive range for her. And Bahowski was that's a crazy PB for her. I would say it does make me think more about Sisson as a, a 10K true mm -hmm. contender because you know yeah. 1455 it shows you get the some some speed, and she's obviously better at a longer distance. So I do think it makes Sisson more of a challenger 100% into that top three in the 10k for sure. Yeah, Kaladi sub 15. We mentioned Monson got the Olympic standard two 1507, and Gwen Jorgensen got it as well with a 1508. The men's side of things, I'm going to channel our former colleague Lincoln Strike, who we haven't heard from on the group chat in a while. Hope he's doing okay. Lincoln, oh. send us a message if you get this. He would always say, you got to like Grant Fisher here. That was his go-to. Anytime Grant Fisher was in a race, you got to like Grant Fisher. And it paid off here. 1305, 
pretty big margin of victory too. Mark Scott 1302. Sorry, 1302 to Mark Scott's 1305, McGordy yeah. 13 and collect uh 1306 and Joe Klecker 1306 as well. But I think the the most impressive part of Fisher's run here was closing in 55. Because that's the part that's gonna put you on a team is the ability to close that quickly. Yeah, this is the Grant Fisher that I think Grant Fisher has finally arrived. When he came out of high school, he was, you know, that that phenom, the broke four. But when he went to Stanford, he was super like held back and conservative with his training, or with his racing and under Milt's mm-hmm. leadership. So like he never went all in on a 5K to try to see how fast he could truly go. I mean, even right. in his first 5K, he called himself still a 1,500-meter runner. And throughout his entire four years at, in college, he raced not – he didn't race often. He never really mm-hmm. time-trialed. He just got the top 48 mark in the West and then you know went on to try to win a national title. He had early success his sophomore year, but even – he never really showed – he never had like a Morgan McDonald-type dominance or a Cesarek. And even his first year out of college, he kind of just became another guy. He didn't – he wasn't like, oh, watch out, Grant Fisher, like top three threat. But yeah, but now him running a 13.02, not an – with a strong close to a mm-hmm. 13.02, shows like, one, he's running an elite time with a strong close. He is now like – in the peak of this is what we thought you could do come when you were 18, 19 year old. And we finally have it. And I think Grant Fisher, he's young still. I mean, he's still young. I'm not sure how old he is. He's what, 23, 24? I'm not sure the exact mm-hmm. age, but he's still young. And I think the sky's the limit for this guy. I think he's, this is a mark that says you're going to win multiple national titles and you're going to flirt with the American record in the next Whoa. Th- throughout the next five years. I mean, hundred percent. Whoa. Wow. Based on his, what his talent level is, he is now really yeah. honing in on his talent. Like this isn't going to be a one hit wonder. This is just the start. Like he's going to run. Okay. 1250 multiple times. Like he's going to break 13 right. at least three times in the next two years. Wow. Okay. Confident in Fisher. The time matches up to his 10K time. So he's already proven he's not a one-hit wonder because he did these two awesome performances right here in the winter with the 10 and then now the 5,000. Again, that that 55-second close is awfully encouraging if you're you're a Fisher fan because he was right with Scott there. And even the wind-up before that, he goes 61 to 55. Now, the wind-up might be a little bit more dramatic in a in a championship because that was preceded by a 63 and a 64 so maybe it'll cut down even more dramatically there maybe they'll have a couple uh laps that are closer to 60 before the final 800 but yeah it's hard not to be optimistic about him i mean us here all around i mean mcgordy and klecker getting well under 1310 that's got to feel good uh for them scott a little bit off of his you know what we thought he could do based on his 10,000, but that's still a pretty good a pretty good race for him, all things considered. Oliver Hoare, man, your guy, Oliver Hoare, was like, had stuck his neck in there. This is pretty impressive because I was thinking, I'm watching, they're running close to 13 low pace. I'm like, is Oliver Hoare 
like at only 13.05. This is nuts. And then his last two laps, 68.19 and then 68.15. Basically, your curse of Oliver Hoare, where you put him in every single event, happened here again, where everything was going well until until it wasn't. But I, I mean, he still ran, what, he's run 13.20? Yeah, 13.22 here. So still a good time. But he was just clicking off. He was right there with them, 62, 63, 64. Like, chill, looked great. And then all of a sudden, he just, like, wasn't in the picture. I didn't know what happened to him. It was pretty pretty precipitous drop-off there. But story here being Grant Fisher. Yeah. So would you have him on the team right now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a- along with right now, you're putting Bohr on the team? You're putting Chalim on the team? That team's getting hard to make, that 5,000 team. Yeah, I mean, right now, I think my team would be uh, – Chalimo Fisher and Lamont. Okay. All right. Let's talk about this 15, this men's 15, because Josh Kerr, you, you nailed the time, but Josh Kerr is on a roll. His role has been one continuous motion since a couple of years ago. Because as I mentioned in the preview, he had some really good races in those small meets last year in Oregon and he led from way far out. And this was the same situation here. He led from super far out and, and won it in three thirty five point seven eight. Great Britain is like, we just talked about Mark Scott too. If you want to talk about countries bump, bumping up their game here, they got Elliot Giles now in the 800. They got a whole fleet of guys in the 1500, including Kerr. They got Scott and Mo and Mo Farah in the longer distances. It's going to be a good, uh, it's going to be a good summer, I think for, for Great Britain, but I was just impressed by Kerr once again here. Every time Josh Kerr runs on American soil, he is dunking on a U.S. 1,500-meter running because he is showing Americans this is how it's done. Like, like he came in the collegiate uh, U.S. collegiate system, and he, you know, he just is – he's running the way – U.S. 1500 meters should be running, and he mm-hmm. just shames them. He you go, goes out there, he runs 335, and then the rest of America is like, we're going to run 338. You know, he goes mm-hmm. out there, runs 334. He goes out there, and he, he is ne- he's never running 339 or 338 the way every American and their mom wants to do. He is always a, – a baseline race is the, is the Olympic standard for him, and then mm-hmm. – it's a matter of whether or not he'll just go a little bit faster or much faster. And I remember we did a podcast with him and he talked about how British 1500 meter running is better than us 1500 meter running. And mm-hmm. our immediate reaction is like, shut up. We got Matt Centrowitz, but mm-hmm. he's kind of right. Like mm-hmm. the British have, what, what's, what's their population? How, how big is Britain? Not much, not much. You can go, but they, yeah, they have, J- they have, J- you know, they have Grice, they got Waitman, they got Kerr, they got a squad over there, for sure. Yeah, and they continue to show up at these meets. I mean, yeah, we, we might have an American who will show up at the very, very last meet and be in that medal hunt um, at Worlds or Olympics, but like, you know, you're not, you're not going to get bad races from Josh Kerr. He, he I think yeah. he, uh, he posted an Instagram of his photos, like, you, if you have. This isn't a surprise if you haven't been ta- if you haven't been paying attention. This is a surprise or something like that. And I was like, no, I'm paying yeah. attention, dude. I said you run 335 yeah. and you won, and I am paying attention to the fact that you are 
just so much better than any American 1500 meter runner. It's not even close. I don't think he's talking about you. He's probably talking about somebody else no, because when you I predict know. it to the 10th, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, but <laughs> back to my earlier point though, look at Great Britain right now. You got Giles, like I mentioned in the eight, you got this quartet in the in the 15 with Kerr, O'Hare, Whiteman, and Grice. You got Mark Scott, you got Mo Farah. On the women's side of things, you have a 19-year-old Keely Hodgkinson who just won the Euro title for the 800. You have Gemma Riki, you have Laura Muir. Uh, the list goes on and on right now. Like Great Britain is is really deep in in the mid distance all the way up through the distance events. And we'll see if they can continue it going through to the Olympics. But right now, yeah, in a very strong position. Uh, you brought up Centro. He finished eighth and 340. He was there. Like he was, when Kerr made the move, the race was essentially over, but Centro was in that, that chase pack and it looked like he might get second. And then over the last 200, he fell back quite a bit. Is this a big deal? Do you think, or absolutely no deal to quote PTI? I think it's a deal. I don't know if it's a big deal or no deal, but I do think it is a deal. I know and that sounds weird what I'm saying, but like, does it matter? I mean, is what I'm asking. He definitely shut it down for the record. And it's not like he, he max, he's like washed and he's maxed out at 340, 1500 right. running. But it does show that like he isn't an automatic. When I show up, I'm the best guy on the track the way he was two, three, four years ago. And I do think for him to make the team, he's going to have to have a great day. Now, he's possible to have a great day, but he's not going to make the team on a good day. He's only going to make the team on a great day. And the question is, is he going to navigate these next few months to make sure he has that great day when it matters? Now he can. He's done it. Um, he has the experience and the talent, but he's he doesn't have room for air anymore. And I think that's what we learned from this race is that he is getting closer to the twilight of his career where, you know, you got to make sure you show up at the right moment. It kind of reminds me of like um, Nick Simmons in 20, was it 2015? Mm -hmm. When the team. he, he kind of was just like, not really in any races during the regular season. He didn't really know. He wasn't looked at as like a dominant figure in the 800. And then he just showed up at USA's and won. Yeah. And it showed like, got I still time. got it. I, I know how to time it. And he, in his post-race interviews, it was all about like, I know how I know what how to be where I need to be at the right moment. Yeah, And I think that's what Central has to do. He has to be where he needs to be at the right moment. But it's a little bit off. Something happens. Then he's change of change of air. Well, he's a guy who's run indoors pretty regularly. I remember that was the year that he decided not to do it, and it was kind of a a, a big deal. We were used to seeing him race at Milrose. Twenty nineteen, he didn't race indoors, but twenty nineteen he opened. He ran pretty classic and got sixth in the mile in three fifty two. Now that was in June, the end of June. This is in the beginning of March. So it's a little bit, a little bit, it's just hard to compare. He's at like a weird, a weird spot. I want to see at least one more race from like one more early season race from him before I chart his course forward, because you could definitely see a scenario where this was just 
him completely shaking off the rust. I know he ran that 5,000 late in 2020, but yeah, you could also say, hey, he's in a new stage in his career and the wins aren't going to come as easy now. And that's not, that wouldn't be surprising because everybody has that point in their career. And he's just not going to prioritize these races the way other athletes are. Right. Right. I mean, but you look at, say, for example, 2060, the year he won the Olympic gold, you know, he won Milrose in 350 at the end of February, his first outdoor, well, no, and then he went on to win, obviously, world indoors as well, too. So that was a different year. But his first, his first 1500 outdoors was Portland Track Festival, I want to say, three, uh, runs 341. Um and gets ninth in that race, right? So, I mean, <laughs> there you go. Just, yeah, I mean, there's. That's true. Yeah. Well, no, I'm looking at this right now. Invitational men's 1500. Clayton Murphy first in 3:36. Jordan McNamara, Doran Ulrey, Ben Sorrell, Hassan Mead, Graham Crawford, Matthew Mayton, Christian Serratos, and then Matt Centrowitz, 341.39. Now, you know what I think he's he's doing? He's giving fellow runners like a story. For their for them to have for the rest of their life being like the time they beat <laughs> Olympic champion Matthew Sensu. It's like he's like saying, All right, who who has yet to beat me? Okay. You now have the story. I'm gonna run three forty yeah. here. And congratulations. Yeah. You can be sitting there. Here you go, Ryan Adams. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, Ryan Adams. You you forever can beat me. I mean, he did he he almost decided to give it to Cole Hawker, but he's like, No, 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 no. Cole, you're too young for you to have this story and he and he outleaned him in that five K. And that's and that's my that's my point too. That 5K wasn't it would that was long enough ago to where you're thinking okay, there you could still be race rusty now starting up again, but it wasn't so far ago that you can't use that as okay. He's at least in a baseline. I mean, it's 13:30 low. wasn't the world's great. You know, was far from his PB, but he he looked pretty sharp and beating Cole Hawker now that win ages pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a three fifty miler. It's pretty good. Anyway, all right. Those are my observations from the sound running invite. We're now going to play your interview, Gordon, with Blake Bolden, who was on the selection committee, to give us a little more insight on that process, and then we'll come back after that interview, talk about it, wrap it up, and then tell people what to expect the rest of the week on the show. So here's Gordon's interview with Blake Bolden. Want to welcome uh, director of the Drake Relays. Blake Bolden, who is also a member of the NCA Selection Committee, where they just announced the 31 men's and women's teams and the top individuals who will be going to the NCAA championships in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But this is a unique time, right? We're used to having a regional system, and we didn't have that this time because of COVID-19. I guess first question I wanted to ask you was, why were regionals not held this season, and how did the committee come to the decision to create this unique selection process? Yeah, so the, the decision about uh, hosting regionals and, and the format for nationals wasn't actually a sport-specific decision. It was based on the NCA mandate that all school, or all, excuse me, all fall sports that were rescheduled to the spring had a, a reduction in their championship size. So the championship oversight committee, excuse me, it might have been the competition oversight committee. Sometimes the, the committees actually all get jumbled up in my mind a little bit sometimes. But it was the competition oversight committee back on August 26th of 2020. Uh, they came out and said, 
in their first recommendation of a report that applied to all fall sports that the NCAA championship itself would not see a reduction. So as a member of the sport committee, certainly happy to hear that, that we didn't have to reduce from 31 teams to some number smaller than that. But in the sport of cross country, rather than reducing the final championship site, the recommendation from that larger committee was no regionals. So then after that, in September, the sport committee was charged with determining uh, the selection criteria, which it, as you know, incredibly challenging criteria uh, that we created, but also an incredible challenge to create those criteria in the first place. In September, not knowing the circumstances that would unfold in October, November, December, and so on, um, but the effort was made to create those criteria and publish them as quickly as we could and as fairly as we could, realizing some institutions and conferences were contesting championships in the fall, others were not and had yet not yet made a determination. So there were so many factors at play. The committee understood at that moment in time, the simpler, the better, with an emphasis on the cross-country championships at the, at the conference level. So when we look at the, once you guys made the announcement for the selection criteria, just to give our viewers a quick recap of what it is, all teams were to be considered how to compete at least once during the season, and conference championship performance was going to be weighted most. That's what the, the verbiage you guys used. Yep. Um, I guess my first question is, how did the committee interpret the phrase weighted most? You know, in the past with regionals, you would never see a team that you – you beat at you lost to at regionals, not make it. Basically, all teams in descending order list within a region would go because there could never be like a you couldn't skip a team. So, how did your committee analyze weighted most with a conference championship? Yeah, and Gordon, that's a that's a terrific question. Um, certainly, the intent there is to place uh, uh, an emphasis on championship events, and as as we're seeing unfold in basketball and what happens on an annual basis. Uh, the, the conference tournaments and conference regular season are weighted the most. Um, however, cross country is very, very different. So we, we, we left it with an ambiguous statement because there are more conferences than we have spots um, or at least an equal number. So we knew that automatic qualifiers would not be possible um, based on conference finish. So conference champions would not automatically receive a berth. Um, However, I, and maybe maybe it helps for me just to take a step back and talk about what the selection process it, itself looked like because um, we did we did weight the conference championships uh, significantly, but what that means in practice and application might help clarify uh, an overall understanding of the general public, but then also kind of shape our conversation here as we go. Uh, we worked closely with direct athletics uh, in the in the in the leadership team there. Um, they did a wonderful job of building a custom uh, tool using TFIRS and, and the and, and the uh, excuse me the declaration information that was provided during the entry process. So we had a dashboard and the shared screen where uh, on on the left hand side of the screen were all excuse me on the screen were all declared teams, and then there were two additional columns in consideration and then it accepted in the meet. Um, so we started with all of the declared teams in the left-hand column and the conference champions were at the top and, and it automatically ranked by conference champions. So we were then able to pull all conference champions into the, to the middle column and then start to identify 
uh, just objectively as possible, how do we compare conference champions versus conference champions? Move move the most clear cut dis, the, the uh, definitive qualifiers over to the right hand column. As we did that, it was then able to we were then able to see all head to head wins of those in either the left or middle columns against anyone that we'd moved to the right. As you know, very little head-to-head non-conference competition in 2020, 2021. So that that wasn't significant data, but it did guide conversation when a victory over a, a qualified team appeared in either of those two columns. So I hope that process helps inform. And then, and then what, when we kind of narrow that list down, certainly when a conference champion would be moved over, we would then look at second place, possibly third place in each of those conferences to then continue uh, on, on, a, on a head-to-head basis. Um, certainly look at all of the, the, the comparative data was, that was available relative to cross-country this academic year um, in, 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 in all of those teams in that middle column. You mentioned how there are more conferences than spots. Couldn't just give everyone who won a conference title an automatic berth. With that being said, it, we would assume that it, the committee had to give, you know, preferential, not preferential, but consideration towards the strength or depth of a conference. Was that taken into consideration where if someone, you know, was the winner of the Pac-12 conference versus another conference that doesn't have a history of cross-country national champions, was that considered for ranking your conference champions? Our, our efforts were almost exclusively focused on the current academic year um, and, and the, the current rosters, the current performances of the teams. Um, and so, and, and maybe let me speak even more personally because I was at a conference championship on Wednesday and I can give you, I can't speak for all of the committee members, I can speak for myself personally. And, and, I, and I will say we started the selection yesterday, it was an eight hour process with heavy deliberation and sometimes very impassioned arguments from one committee member to, to another and back and forth throughout the process. And I can say very clearly, effort, every effort was made for an objective and fair process to determine our 31 institutions and those individual qualifiers. So, but let me speak personally, because I was at the Missouri Valley Conference meet on Wednesday. I did have the good fortune of also being at the SEC championships last October. So I saw some championships and, 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 and could give some first person accounts of the quality of the teams at, and individuals at those championships. But when I left Wednesday from the Missouri Valley Conference meet, the two winners at that championship were, were clearly impressive. Each of them put four in the top five in the individual race, one in, in commanding fashion over what, in my estimation, is, is a pretty good Missouri Valley Conference. Now, how does the Missouri Valley Conference compare with any of the other 30, well, there were 29 conferences held, that held, or excuse me, 28 conferences contested championships. So how does the Missouri Valley Conference compare with the 27 other championships? It's a good question. It's a hard one to answer. So then I looked at those teams in our league that competed out of the conference. And there's not very many data points there, as you could tell, but very clearly I could see uh, these teams compared favorably or at least compared well with Lipscomb uh, based on a head-to-head competition. Looked at, at what Bra- uh, excuse me, what Butler did that same day. Then also, and this is both men and women, uh, Loyola on our women's side, Illinois State on the men's side. But then I looked at other common opponents. 
where Lipscomb competed against Liberty on the women's side or others. And then you look at what, realizing it's a very limited data set when to examine the pathway for each conference champion and what that season meant for their, their own student athletes. That was the same diligence that we examined every conference champion in the country. So uh, it's, it's, an almost impossible task, and at the end of the day, we did take it incredibly serious because it's, to me, it's a life-changing decision that some student-athletes are going to have the opportunity to experience a championship for the first and maybe only time, and then there are others who won't have that experience. So it wasn't lightheartedly or haphazardly that we went through that process. Were, was like last year's NCA finish or this year's indoor 5k or 3k marks or even like the coaches poll taken into consideration when trying to create more data points no so the coaches poll wasn't wasn't a, a reference point at all for any member of the committee um and and personally i made an effort to not look at that until after the selection was over um and the the, the indoor track and field uh, marks from TFIRS were not examined, even for the individuals, um, realizing that that is an entirely separate championship that will be contested uh, days prior. So the, the, that data was not there. Several committee members, um, and myself included, would reference past whether, whether as you've asked already, the, the quality of a, a conference or their place finish from previous seasons. But then uh, the NCAA staff that were present on the call reminded us every time that that would come up. And it was a, a half a dozen times over eight hours um, that they would remind us that that was not our selection criteria. That was not the purpose of our conversation. And it was it was a healthy dialogue. And so those, while it's not possible to remove those thoughts from your mind, they were not part of the selection conversation or criteria. There were some uh, unique circumstances for some notable teams out there, uh, specifically University of Michigan, uh, a perennial cross-country school that wasn't able to compete at their Big Ten championship out of their own control due to COVID-19. How did you handle a team like Michigan and even a team like Navy, who also wasn't able to compete at their conference championship due to COVID protocols? So basically a team that ran a regular season but didn't really have a conference championship data point. Yeah, the, you, you are speaking to the heart of the challenges that the committee faced. Um, certainly, the, the, the process remained focused on that student-athlete experience, doing everything we can to, to whether, whether the region, whether the circumstances were within their control, without their control, doing everything we can to have an equitable selection process. And I'm confident that the members of the committee did just that. Was there was, – so, so, like, first – like, how do you – measure a, a a one race i mean a one race data point right where was was there anything that you had to do because you know from the outside michigan men and women both went to the same meet the michigan women didn't really race anyone of uh stature and had an easier perfect score versus michigan went up against syracuse which ended up to make the the meet is there was there a little bit of a a catch-22 for Michigan men where if they wouldn't have raced a Syracuse, if they would have raced a, a, a lesser opponent, they could have, in the eyes of the committee, looked a little stronger? Gordon, you've got the right questions, um, and, and that's a hypothetical, certainly. Um, and and the, the, 
the the challenge that the committee faced is we knew it would be scrutinized uh, absolutely, but we didn't deal on hypotheticals. We de dealt in the real data that we had, and we did everything we could to to ensure the fairest process with with the best possible championship next week in Stillwater. One other team that uh, we normally are always seeing at the NCAA championships. They're a uh, historical uh, franchise or historical program when it comes to running. University of Oregon, uh, the women didn't uh, really have any data points because they didn't uh, finish at Pac-12s, but the Oregon men finished fourth at Pac-12s. Uh, they were nationally ranked. We've seen what they were doing on the indoor scene. Uh, what was the justification for the Oregon men uh, not being selected? Yeah, it's my understanding that Oregon is is placing a significant emphasis on the indoor championships, and I, I, I'd encourage you, Gordon, to reach out to the, the staff at Oregon to really provide clarity on their plans. Um, and again, we, we, we focused on those that are declared and those with a, with a primary emphasis on uh, the, the conference champions, both uh, in team and individuals. In general, what was the uh, toughest decision? Like where did the whole, you know, I'm sure at the beginning it was easy. Hey, BYU, you're going to NCAAs, NAU, you're going to NCAAs. But eventually when we get down to the, those 25 to 31 tier it got a little harder. What in general was the toughest decision for you guys? You know, I think you've, you've hit the process. I mean, you, you understand when I, when I've laid out the, and that's why I try to be as transparent as possible. There've been times where I've been left out of a championship in which I felt very strongly I belonged there. Um, and so I understand those student athletes that are on the outside looking in this spring on this championship and the heartache that they feel. I, I just, I, I felt it in, in my past as an athlete and as a coach. Um, so you, that's why I tried to lay out with clear transparency the thought process and how it was done, even the mechanics with those three columns. And as you understand very clearly, moving from the middle column to the right-hand column for the first dozen or possibly 15 or 20 uh, for both genders, I don't know if it was exactly straightforward, but relatively uh, call it debate-free. You know, there, there, there could be a quick consensus on those teams if not exactly in order of selection, uh, because to be clear, the order of selection wasn't as significant as getting it right. So when we moved those teams to the right-hand column and they would be considered selected, uh, the first dozen or more, a consensus was very easily determined. And then it got very challenging where we could identify, you know, so then we get in the middle and at some stage we would evaluate everyone in that column not to see if they were going right, but to see who went left and was no longer in consideration. So then, then we could get to some point where there was a clear consensus on who went right. And then we get to the middle column where we had, you know, somewhere between 35 and 40 teams and, 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 and under total consideration. And that's where conversations got very heated and, and very deliberate comparing, um, team to team, and as you've indicated very clearly, there are some times in which a body of work might feel like we're comparing an apple to an orange, um, and, and the, the, the challenges were, were immense, but ultimately we're thrilled that we are hosting a championship, and we're, we're glad. You know, one thing, the, the, the pandemic has changed a lot in our lives. One thing it hasn't changed is the passion and enthusiasm for the coaches in the NCAA. Um, they're, they're ready. And, and no doubt we'll have a uh, world-class, you know, the, the, the NCAA cross-country meet every year is 
among the best foot races in the world. And there's no no doubt that that we'll see that a week from now in Stillwater. One last question. Because of this unique situation, we had a unique selection process. We had individual champions at every conference get an automatic berth, which basically has turned the meet into a little more, it has a little diverse school presence, you know, because um, there's going to be schools that are going to represent an athlete for the first time in their program history. Do you, do you believe, or do, is there any talk within the committee that aspects of this selection process might be carried on forward, uh, seeing, uh, giving more weight to a conference championship? You know, if the, an athlete may not be top four in their region, but they could win their conference champion. That's an interesting concept. Um, I, I think the one thing that this, just to be very candid, one thing that this process reaffirmed for everyone on the, on the selection committee was the way we do it in an annual basis is pretty good. Because uh, I, I think that if we were to take a, unit, a vote on if we should do it again the way we just did, it would be uh, unanimous opposition to having to go through an eight-hour day of deliberation and debate. And also, to be clear, that wasn't the first time we had the conversation. There were several mock selections um, because, as I said, the tool that we used was custom-built never before used and how we could identify conference champions and, and to really speak to where it was weighted and how it was weighted, the number of points that they won by or uh, or lost by for every criteria at their conference meet. Um, time was not a factor that we examined. You, you didn't ask that specifically, but to those coaches and athletes and fans that are wondering, um, you know, if there were course to course comparisons based on time, that was set aside entirely. Um, we, we really tried to use the, the data that we had in front of us based on the criteria that were communicated. Um, and, and again, the consensus without talking about what we would apply from this process uh, to the future, I think the consensus first and foremost is that we just don't want to have to do it this way again. Yeah. Well, we all want a, a sense of normalcy. Hopefully 2021's cross-country championship is normal and uh, we get through the summer and the spring and a strong and healthy way. Uh, Blake, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us into our community. Really gives us an inside look of what was going on in that eight-hour war room. Uh, thank you for your time, and I really appreciate the insight. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for all your coverage, and uh, best of luck to all those teams and coaches that are competing next week. All right. Thanks to Blake Bolden for joining Gordon. Gordon, I got one question. Once you wrapped with the interview, how many times did you ask him if you could be a part of the committee, if there ever is one again, uh, I did not. I did not ask. I, I maybe I should try to find the location, the Zoom link. Um, <laughs> hey, I was just up. I was just happy that one, they were willing to do the interview, and two, that the results again that they came out with were very similar to my exitology results. So the committee isn't fraying too far away from uh, what Gordon would have wanted. So. If I was in that committee, uh, maybe the it wouldn't have been an eight-hour meeting. I probably would turn into a sixteen-hour battle to try to get my way. Or so maybe there's a reason it would have been so there. annoying that they said we're going to cut this All to right. three hours because we can't stand being around. <laughs> this guy keeps yelling about Cesarek and a Bowerman. Like, does he know that this is not about that? This is about selecting something else. 
Okay, let us know what you think. Podcast at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on YouTube. Certainly a lot to debate. I was checking in on the YouTube comments while the interview was running. You've been called a, quote, prediction god on YouTube based on your last set of Gordon's guesses. So there's only it was only three comments under it and they were all positive and one person called you a god. So uh, good, you got a high bar to clear next time, Gordon. All right, we'll see if we can do it. Uh, hopefully my predictions carry weight at NCAs. That's going to be a, that's going to be a, the more difficult task is the NCA predictions. Yeah. So we'll have to do those on, I guess we'll do those on Wednesday. Can you let people know our tentative schedule this week? Yeah. So, uh, when, so Wednesday we'll do a massive podcast where we're going to preview the indoor championships, Mm -hmm. do some, some picks and, uh, predictions. And then also we're going to do a cross-country draft where we're going to draft you and me. We're going to see who can pick the best cross-country squad and score it. Mm-hmm. So that's all on Wednesday podcast. Then Friday podcast is actually going to be a late podcast because we're actually going to record it after all of the indoor prelims so we can kind of have mm-hmm. a rapid reaction to the first day of NCA indoors. And then here we go. We're going to do – two live podcasts on Saturday, one during the men's races and another during the women's session where we're going to mm-hmm. live react to the NCAA indoor championship finals. Maybe give us a little bit of play-by-play, give our takes, our reactions to each race during that two-hour period of the men's race races and a two-hour period of the women's races. And then Monday, we're going to do another p- live podcast. So three live podcasts in a row, but Monday's podcast is going to be even more mega. We're going to go live about maybe an hour before the first races um, in Stillwater go off. And then we'll be live throughout the entire race. We will be doing our own little play-by-play from home. It'll be good times. Uh, It's going to be a great podcast. Maybe, maybe we'll have a special guest. Maybe. And where can people watch this? I know after the fact they can listen to it. We're going to post it as per usual if you're an audio listener. But if people want to watch it live, how can they watch it? It'll be on YouTube. Flowtrack Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, just okay. go on YouTube, type in Flowtrack Podcast, and you'll find it. Pretty simple. Yep. All right. Well, there it is. We got a lot of work to do to get prepped for that. Uh, yes. And it, thanks in advance to Alon for doing all that yeah. to get it going, for dealing with all of your exceedingly difficult demands here. Uh, and thanks to Alon for producing today, of course, and for Blake Bolden for chatting with Gordon. That's all we got. We will be back, as Gordon said, on Wednesday, and then Friday in the evening, Saturday a bunch of times, and then again on Monday. It's a big weekend in NCAAs. We'll talk to you guys soon.